Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. There's a version of the future where self-driving electric cars ferry people around in an emission-free but car-friendly world. Paris Marx is not buying it for a minute. Why not? Well, that's laid out in their new book. It's called Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. Paris Marx hosts the podcast Tech Won't Save Us and joins us now here in our studio. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you, too. Great to have you here. I want to start by just reading an excerpt of the book, and then we'll dive in. The history of automobility is hardly a natural progression. Its present-day dominance of transportation systems in North America, Australia, parts of Europe, and increasingly in parts of the Global South, is the product of a concerted effort by invested interests to completely overhaul the way we live and get around to serve their bottom lines. Instead of living within close proximity of our workplaces and the services we rely on, everything has been spread out so that we have to buy an automobile, insure it, get frequent maintenance, fill it up with fuel, and waste a growing amount of our time in traffic. There were opportunities to take a different path, but powerful interests won out and got the support of the state to subsidize and entrench their vision for the future. Hmm. That's a very different take on things, uh, as you well know. What's wrong with the notion that we have a transportation system that was developed ostensibly by capitalism, by the profit motive? Well, I think it ends up serving a certain array of interests over what we actually need to get around, right? It doesn't best serve the communities, doesn't look to you know, ensure that we get around in an, in an efficient way, in an affordable way. It's how can we encourage people to spend more and more of their money on transportation, and then that benefits a whole load of different interests, whether it's auto companies or oil companies or you know, various other interests that are associated with it. Now, you live in Newfoundland. Absolutely. Has it been different in Canada, our experience? Is it different than, than that which you've just described? No, I, I think it's quite similar, actually. You know, certainly we can look to the United States as somewhere where the automobile is maybe most entrenched, but very much that has, um, you know, carried over to Canada. We've made major investments in order to encourage people to use automobiles. Certainly when we look at, you know, the percentage of trips that people take using cars, it's really high because we have built our communities in such a way that for many people, you need a car just to get around. Had it not unfolded the way it has, Mm -hmm. in other words, if we could go back and redesign it in a way that you think is more commodious to other interests, Mm -hmm. how would we have done things differently? I think we wouldn't have put so much effort into encouraging people to drive, right? Because there was an opportunity to, sure, you have cars in there, but you also have many other different ways of getting around that you know, work for people in their cities, right, that are convenient. But in many of the communities that we ended up building, you know, as we built out the suburbs and expanded the size of cities, um, those communities were not built in such a way where it's easy to cycle to get where you're going to go or easy to take transit. It's it's built in such a way that you basically need to drive or you're going to be really inconvenienced when you need to get around. The suggestion, though, seems to be that it was them, those sort of evil forces that foisted this system upon us, mm-hmm as opposed to our having chosen to do it this way, because a lot of people like living in the suburbs and they like the wider roads and they like the freedom that driving a car brings, et cetera. You know, by that? I think it's a mix, right? I think that there were definitely 
um, reasons to adopt that early on when it was being sold to people, right? And, and when you think of you know, visions of the future as they're often sold to people, when you think back to the early promise of the automobile, the amount of time you were gonna spend stuck in traffic wasn't part of the promise. The amount of time you were gonna have to spend on an automobile wasn't part of the promise. There are a whole load of things that weren't really part of the, uh, the contract that was given to people for what this future, what this suburban future was going to look like. And I think now, a number of decades on, we can look back at that and say, okay, there were things that maybe made sense about what we were doing in that moment, but I think that we took it much too far. I think that we allowed the automobile to take over far too much and that it's time for us to maybe reassess that past and think about what we're going to do in the future to rectify some of those problems that we've created. And we shall get to that, but before we go there, why do you think it's important for people to understand the history of our cities and highways and why it sort of came to be this way. Yeah, I, I think it can be easy to think, you know, when we think about our cities right now, that this is the way it is, this is the way it's always been, this is the way it's always going to be, right? But going back and looking at that history shows us that it used to be very different, right? Our streets were not always kind of exclusive roadways for cars. Sure, there are some buses on there, streetcars, things like that, but largely the street is the space for the car. At one time, it was a much more kind of shared space for many different forms of transportation where people could walk, could bike, and because of the low speeds, this was navigated between a whole load of different people. And when the car really rolled out, we forget now that there was a lot of backlash to that by people who lived in cities who were experiencing the very direct downsides of that as people were dying, children in particular, and there were a lot of protests against it. And so I think that, you know, understanding how the car came to be gives us more insight into, you know, how we got to where we are today and also kind of denaturalizes this system that we have right now and allows us to question, you know, what we've built and also where it can go next. I, I do remember seeing very old pictures of this city, though, before the car took over, and you've essentially got you know, you got dirt streets, right? You got dirt totally. streets, no streetcars, you know, very little vehicular traffic. I mean, you're not saying we can go back to that. No, absolutely yeah. not. I'm not saying it was perfect and, you know, we need to look back to better days or anything. Um, just to say that the streets operated in a different way at one time. They can still operate in a different way again if we want to rethink, you know, how we distribute space on the street, what forms of transportation we give priority to, right now a lot of priority is given to the car. And the question is, should we give more of that space over to cyclists or to bus lanes or things like that to encourage people to get around in a different way and to make it easier for people not to have to take a car to get around the city? Part of the contract we have apparently made with the car involves, as you just indicated, a lot of death. Mm -hmm. And I want to just put some numbers here on the table that you uh, talk about in your book. You have written, in the United States alone, 3.7 million people have been killed by motor vehicles since 1899. That's basically, I looked it up, that's, that's Croatia. Yeah. The country of Croatia, that's their population. Uh, in the year 2020, almost 40,000 Americans died in car accidents. And we shouldn't even call them accidents because they're not accidents. A lot of people think yeah. we're dying by design. And yet, there are no demonstrations in the streets about the unsafety of our streets, our design, our failure to share the road appropriately. It seems to be a fact of life that we accept this much carnage on the roads. Why yeah. do you think? I think it's quite troubling, right? I think it's quite troubling that it's been normalized to that degree. And certainly the death figures aren't as bad in Canada as they are in the United States where it's particularly bad. Um, but I think it's worrying that, you know, we've just kind of 
accepted that this is the trade-off for having all these cars around, that people are naturally going to die when it doesn't have to be this way, right? When we can make different decisions, whether, whether it is, you know, just to change the way that automobility works, that our streets work right now to reduce the number of deaths that automobiles are causing, or to move away from having so many people dependent on automobiles altogether, right? There are actions that we can take today in order to reduce those deaths, but there's not the priority on it that I think there should be. Um, and you know, I think that there are some movements, some groups that are trying to call more attention to this, that are trying to force this to be more of a topic of conversation. Certainly there's the growth of sort, say um, vision zero movements and things like that, that are trying to um, have those policies adopted to reduce those death numbers. But it's seriously concerning that this is a trade-off that, that we've made. And you know, to relate it to something today, I think that we're also seeing a normalization with COVID and things like that, right? Mm. As these deaths continue, it's, it's just something that we need to accept as part of living in society. And I think the question is, do we really need to accept that? Or could we be doing things, whether it's to reduce road deaths, to reduce COVID deaths, that we've just decided we kind of collectively don't want to do? Well, we seem to be going in the opposite way that you would like us to go, because I look at the 400 series highways in this province, yeah. you know, the 401, the 400, and so on. They've increased the speed limits to 110 yeah. kilometers an hour. And my hunch is that if anybody ran for office on a pledge to reduce the speed limit in the city of Toronto, for example, or in Ottawa, to uh, 30 kilometers an hour, uh, as opposed to 50, uh, you know, drivers would rise up in arms. They'd be furious about it. No one could get elected on that platform. Doesn't this prove people love their cars? They love their freedom. They're prepared to put up with a lot of crap in order to have the freedom to drive. It's a good question, and I think I would see it a little bit differently, right? I think I would see it that we've built a society where the majority of people are dependent on cars to get around. And so naturally, anything that now kind of uh, restricts them in their ability to do that as they perceive the quickest way as possible, um, they would be opposed to it. And I think you can completely understand that, even if, you know, when you look at the, the traffic science behind that, you might say, increasing the speed limits to 110 isn't really gonna allow people to get where they're going quicker for the most part. Mm. Um, you're probably going to wanna to better control that and that would lead to, lead to uh, the system being more efficient and the traffic being more efficient. It's like you know when there are proposals from time to time to add roads to highways or build new highways, there's plenty of traffic science that so shows that that's probably not gonna reduce traffic in the long term. People are still gonna get stuck in traffic, but we keep doing it because there's an assumption that you know people naturally assume that if you're gonna add more highway space, you're gonna be able to get there quicker, but actually we have decades of experience that shows us that's not really how it works. Well, we just had an election in the province of Ontario back in June where the party that won pledged to build a new 400 series highway just about an hour north of here, and, and yeah. they won. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. Um, let's do another quote from the book here. Sure. Sheldon, you want to bring this one up here? This is on the commercialization of the internet. We can observe the impact that the dominant interests of the 20th century have had on our lives, our communities, and the planet, and there is a lot that is not to like. However, the 21st century has a new set of powerful interests born out of the commercialization of the internet. And after amassing great fortunes of their own, they too want to make us dependent on their products, not just when we browse the web, but when we are out in our communities too. Despite promises that their visions for transportation and the city will serve everyone, it is already becoming clear that those claims are nothing more than marketing material meant to build public support for their products that will ultimately serve their companies, their shareholders, and themselves. So you are making, obviously, a corollary here between what we've been talking about and now with the internet. And let's talk about Tesla. 
which everybody thinks is a fabulously innovative company and is doing things in a completely new and revolutionary way. You don't think so, why not? No, not exactly. Um, you know, I, I think Tesla is a really interesting example, right? I think it's been kind of positioned as the company that is leading us into the future of kind of the electric vehicle, right? Um, I think it has certainly made some advances because of the people who were there before Elon Musk um, and certainly the people who he depends on to actually do the work while he kind of, you know, does the marketing, right? Um, but I think that we were already kind of heading in a direction toward electric mobility anyway. There were car companies already working on it just before Tesla. Tesla certainly plays a role in uh, making it more appealing to some people. But I think it's a direction we were going on anyway. And you know, Tesla has also been pushing the notion that autonomous vehicles are right around the corner since about 2014, mm -hmm. um, and they're still not here, and I don't think they're gonna be here for a while yet. There's still, I mean, there's a lot of testing going on still. Absolutely. And, uh, and a lot of hope that they may be, that may be the way to go. You're not sold. No, um, I think that, you know, the past eight years of talk around autonomous vehicles has really served to distract us from the conversations that we should be having about transportation in our cities, right? The autonomous vehicle promised that it was going to reduce traffic, make transportation more accessible to people who are underserved by the system right now, eliminate road deaths. Meanwhile, you know, as you were saying, road deaths are increasing in the United States. More and more people are stuck in traffic for longer. The autonomous vehicle is nowhere to be seen in any kind of mass sense. It's just being tested. Meanwhile, we could have been taking actions for those eight years to try to remedy some of those problems, actions that we don't need new technology for. What do you find particularly problematic about Uber from a technology innovation standpoint? Many things. Uh, <laughs> we could talk for a long time about Uber. I think at the core though, you know, Uber really emerges out of the recession period, right? Really takes advantage of a lot of precarious labor that existed as a result. People who um, had lost their jobs during the, pen or during the recession, sorry. Um, and you know, really promised that by using these technologies in a way to upend the taxi system, we were going to make transportation a lot more efficient in cities. And what independent researchers have found is that basically all the promises that they made about the improvements they were going to deliver were not followed through on. And they actually made traffic worse in cities. They didn't really serve the underserved. They didn't reduce car ownership. They took people away from transit. So it's making those trips more efficient or more inefficient, sorry. And then, you know, the core of that as well is Uber has spent a lot of time lobbying against the um, rights of its drivers to ensure that they're carved out of employment protections, treated as independent contractors. And that's not only a problem for those drivers and the people who are in the gig economy, but also if they're successful in entrenching that, you know, presents the threat of more companies, um, you know, reclassifying their workers in that way to carve them out of the protections that they should have. You ever take Uber? I've been in an Uber one time. And? Um, you know, it was like a taxi, basically. A friend uh, called it when it arrived. I, I didn't know about it, but when it was there, um, I said, well, you know, it'd be mean to the guy to not take it. So we just made sure we tipped him well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like a taxi, except you could order it on your phone. And I know you can for some taxis now. Yeah. But when it certainly, when it emerged, you can order it on your phone, probably a nicer car, yeah. and probably cheaper. You don't think that's an innovation? Not really. You know, certainly moving to being able to hail it on your phone, that's, you know, something new. Um, as you say, a lot of taxi companies have adopted it. It's not a real kind of transformation of the taxi industry. Um, the key there, though, is the cost, right? The cost, the, the promise was that this is going to be cheaper, it's going to be more efficient than the taxi system that exists right now. 
a big part of the reason that Uber was cheaper than the taxi industry is that it lost billions of dollars a year in order to finance its growth, and it still loses money to this day. It's not a profitable company. Um, and so it benefited from losing all that money because investors kept giving it, it money to lose because we were in an era where money was cheap, it was easy to access that capital, but also it was able to take advantage of the fact that you know, its workers had fewer rights and fewer protections, and it was able to pay them less and push down their wages. And so I don't think that's really an innovation we should be you know, looking to- uh, Trumpeting, to, right. Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. and I guess I should say, I mean, it, it, it can be cheaper. You know, if you take it in off-peak hours, if you share a ride with somebody else, it can be cheaper. Otherwise, it can be just as expensive as a taxi. Absolutely. But then the other piece of that as well, as you said, with the vehicles, is that, you know, everyone has to own their own vehicle. You don't have this fleet that you're managing. And so there are, there are experts who, you know, I, I've read their work and they suggest that the Uber model is actually less efficient because you don't have the fleet to manage, but you also have these really expensive headquarters, you know, the tech engineers that are paid a lot of money instead of the kind of lower cost uh, taxi model that actually has some efficiencies in there that are important. Well, you've made the case in this that you think we ought to do things differently. Yeah. Okay. Such as, what would you like to see happen? So, as we were talking about, I think that we need to see less of a focus on the automobile, right? Especially in this moment where we recognize that there needs to be a change in the way that people get around, both for you know the reasons as we talked about, the deaths that are happening, the amount of time people are stuck in traffic, but also when we recognize you know the contribution of transportation to climate change. Um, there is a moment here where we need to decide what the future of our transportation system is gonna look like. And so there's one direction where we make a lot of investments in electric cars, but we still have people largely stuck in their cars as they are today, or we put a lot more focus in investing in transit infrastructure to expand that, to make it more reliable, more affordable for people. We expand cycling infrastructure so that we ensure that people can safely get where they need to go. They can store their bikes and know it won't get stolen. We make communities where you can actually access more of the things that you need you know, in proximity to where you live, so you don't need to actually travel as far to reach these things. And we have better uh, transportation between our cities as well, whether it's better rail networks, high-speed rail, you know, from Windsor to Quebec City, for example. Which um, they've only been talking about for half a century. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So there are things that we can do today to make these changes, to try to encourage people, and, and to make it easy for people to get around in a different way. As I said, you know, going back to the history in the book, you know, I really explored how there were a lot of investments, a lot of regulatory changes, a lot of tax measures put in to encourage people to move to the suburbs, to build the suburbs even, to adopt cars. And I think that we need to look at that infrastructure that we've put in place, that set of laws and regulations, and see if we need to start you know, rearranging those to encourage a different way of living, a different way of getting around. Well, I think we got somewhere with that conversation. Uh, in contrary to the title of the book, which is The Road to Nowhere. <laughs> what Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. It's brought Paris Marks to our studio, and we are delighted to have you here. Thanks so much. I really so much. appreciate it. Thanks so much. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.